0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link
1: in the show description to support now.
0: Um, There's a question I ask teens, and I've done this with people of various ages, all the way from kind of tween age right the way up to to late adulthood. And uh, the question is basically you have a choice for phone falls out of your pocket shatters into a million pieces that's one option that's obviously not very pleasant or you can have a small bone in your hand broken what would you prefer now young people struggle with that question a lot
1: Today's guest is Adam Alter. Adam is a New York Times bestselling author of Drunk Tank Pink and Irresistible. The book Irresistible is the reason why I reached out to Adam. In it, he talks about our behavioral addictions, specifically focusing on modern social media abuse, gaming abuse, and the way that large internet companies hack our attention. I think it's extremely important for everyone to understand the science Behind social media addiction, and to realize that just because over 50% of us are affected doesn't mean that it's not harmful. Adam's currently an associate professor of marketing at NYU Stern School of Business and is an expert in social psychology, having received his PhD from Princeton University on the subject. There's not many people out there that know more about this topic than Adam. He's pioneering work to raise awareness to help us break unhealthy habits. I hope that you guys enjoy this episode. We talk about behavioral addiction, how to break from our addictions with our phone, feedback, the culture of toxic goal setting, and much more. Anyways, I had a ton of fun interviewing Adam, and I hope you enjoy listening. So without further ado, Adam Alter. I'm here with Adam Alter, author, professor, great guy. <laughs> thanks, man. <laughs>
0: Appreciate
1: it. <laughs> um, Adam, thanks for thanks for coming on the show. Sure. Um, Adam and I were connected through a mutual friend, Charles. He's never heard any episode. Frankly, because nothing's ever come out yet. And uh, and so I'm always really appreciative when people you know, take a leap of faith, um, to talk to me. Happy to do it. So you wrote a book called Irresistible. Um, it talks about behavioral addiction. Yes. It talks a lot about our addiction to technology in particular, um, which as you know, people listening probably know by now, that's a major source of interest for me. And I think, um, I personally think we have an epidemic, uh, on our hands, but, I guess for starters, what what is behavioral addiction?
0: Yeah, so you know the traditional definition of addiction is focused on substances. Mm. So the, the substance has to be ingested by the body. It interacts with the brain, with various other parts of the body, and produces certain physiological and psychological responses. The thing about behavioural addiction is that if you engineer a behaviour in just the right way or an experience in just the right way, you don't have to take a substance into the body to experience a lot of the same responses from the body. Mm. So, you know, the first real example of that I think is probably gambling and that's been around for a long time. But apart from gambling where you're giving doses of really meaningful rewards like money, there haven't really been a lot of examples of this until fairly recently. And then, you know, video games... And then much more recently, all the experiences we have on our screens have a lot of the hallmarks of addiction or the way we respond to those have a lot of the hallmarks of addiction. So this book is really an attempt to understand what's happened in the last two or three decades, mm. especially the last, I'd say, 15 years since the introduction of Facebook. I'm trying to understand how how the changing landscape and the way we interact with things on our screen, experiences on our screen, has, uh, has produced this new kind of wave of addictions that are much more democratic. So addiction substance addiction has generally affected a pretty small part of the population except when smoking was a really big deal in the 60s and 70s yes um,
1: and I like in I like in our cell phone and social media addiction to smoking yeah and I think you do too as well
0: yeah I do in a lot of respects um, and I think what's interesting about behavioral addiction is it it's so much more democratic like you put anyone in front of the screen mm. and you get you get that kind of behavioral addiction um, and it's it's almost universal and it affects a huge part of the population. And now I guess like one thing that you address
1: in the book is, you know, if it's widespread, is it an addiction?
0: Yeah. Look, I think that's a really important question. And it's where I came up against a a fair amount of pushback. Mm. Some people say by definition, the term is so loaded, that if you're going to use it to describe something that affects half the population, then it becomes empty. I'm sympathetic to that. I think that's important. I think it's, it's important to use terms like addiction sparingly or carefully. Having said that, I do think a lot of the hallmarks of addiction are present when people engage with screens, when they use Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat and Facebook and go online shopping and do all the things we do on our screens. So I think it's appropriate. Having said that, I'm happy to put aside that term and just describe the phenomenon or the phenomena, the various phenomena that go along with these behavioral experiences. Mm-hmm. And even if you don't want to call them addiction, I think there's still something worth talking about. It's I, just useful for me to use the term.
1: I agree entirely. And, and I think I, I would actually take the counterpoint of view to your critics, if you can, even call, if you can call them that. Um, I think using the word addiction is crucial. Um, I think if we shy away from using the word addiction, then people will assume that it's not truly a problem. And, you know, I think anecdotally, many of us see through our relationships um, and our own behaviors that it is a problem. Yeah. Losing lack of agency over my own attention over the last decade since I've been actively engaged on social media has been a problem. Yeah. And I know that others experience this as well. And so I think it's important to use that word.
0: Yeah, I think so too. And for me, it's, it's, uh, it's totally appropriate to use it. And, you know, that's that's where you've got this double-edged sword because you, you have a term like addiction, which is important because it describes something that is serious in magnitude. And that's, I think, appropriate, as you say. Yeah. But at the same time, it, it you risk sensationalizing something that is so widespread. You know, you don't want to introduce a moral panic. You don't want to be the next thing saying, um, you know, TV is going to destroy generations, books are going to destroy yeah. generations, video games and so on. So you, you just want to be a little bit careful. But having said all that, I've been thinking about this for five, six, seven years. It, it's the right term, I think.
1: Yeah. You know, I think about that a lot. Um, you know, I think what was the I forget who wrote manufacturing consent, you know, about modern media. Mm-hmm. Um, people have been saying for ages that the next wave of technology was going to have more of a negative impact socially than positive. Right. So I guess are we are we Luddites?
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think we're luddites. I think we're not just sort of for no good reason pushing against back against technology. I think we have good reason to do it, and mm-hmm. so I don't think that's um, I don't think that's something that we should be concerned about doing. I think we've got to be sceptical and cynical. The, the other problem with this is it's a runaway train. You know, Facebook was introduced and we all signed on. Email was introduced, we all signed on, mm-hmm. and once you sign on, you know, we all wake up every day to the zombies reanimating you read all your emails at night. The next day, they're all back. Hundreds, love, thousands of them. I loved that uh, yeah. that analogy in your book. It, it's not my analogy. It's, uh, it's one that I borrowed, but I think it's perfect for describing emails,
1: right? What is it? It's uh, it's email,
0: emails are like zombies. Yeah. You, you kill them and they just keep coming back to they life. They animate. They just like, they die and they come back the next day. You know, you never get rid of an email. And the minute you get your first email address, you don't realize what you're signing on for, but it's a lifetime of chasing these things. It's crazy. And, and you
1: know, we think that, getting rid of spam, you know, was the solution, but it's actually more than that. Um, I know in your book, you mentioned a statistic, something like 70% of emails are read within six seconds. Yeah.
0: Yeah. it's, It's staggering.
1: So that means that people are literally sitting in front of their computers at the office, start working on something, email pops up, respond to the email.
0: At least read it, yeah. I mean, if, you're, if you have your phone in your pocket and it's, it's, on, it's silent, but it's vibrating, if it vibrates and you know there's something there, you will not be able to focus on anything else until you check it, mm-hmm. if you're like most people. And um, the same is true of looking at a, a PC screen or a computer screen. You're sitting in your office. The little notification pops up. You can't do anything until you look at what's there. The notification, I, my browser window...
1: I don't know if you have this same problem. It's like, it's so funny to watch the tabs get smaller and yeah, smaller and yeah, smaller absolutely. as I open that next article that I'm going to read. And then eventually a whole
0: new window, then a whole new window. Those are awful. <laughs> yeah, no, I know exactly what it's like.
1: It's one of the issues, I think, with like references within a post because yeah. it's like, oh, that sounds interesting. I want to learn about that. Click. Right, and previously in a book, you had to like turn yeah, to the
0: index. It's true, <laughs> the bibliography or whatever. And you don't know how you got seven articles deep, following this kind of wormhole. The yeah. the rabbit hole. It's the rabbit a, hole <laughs> or uh, wormhole. Or wormhole.
1: <laughs> it's uh, it, it's wild, and and it's it's interesting to me because, you know, we also live in an age of. Um, you talk about goals in the book too, mm-hmm. and we live in an age of uh, a cult of productivity. I would call it. Yeah. And so email feels like this incredible tool that will improve efficiency. But in fact, it's the opposite.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's a really good description of modern technology in general. You know, everything has been created with this the sort of idealized view is that it makes things better or easier in some respect. So you've got Facebook, which connects people much more easily than they could be otherwise. Email allows you to communicate more quickly and more effortlessly. Mm-hmm. In theory, you should be able to fire off emails without even thinking about it. But there's an etiquette and then you think about it and you worry about it. And then there are different ways of communicating with different people. And then you feel beholden because you get the email and you feel if you don't respond in a couple of hours, mm-hmm. that's rude and so on. So I think the sort of idealized version of technology is, is I mean, it's a utopia. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have tech. But in truth, when you actually start using it and you combine technology with all the kind of imperfections and foibles of what it means to be human, to worry about social, the social implications of what you do, to to buy into the social contract of being polite and respectful and all of that, it ends yeah. up meaning that... Technology becomes a ball and chain a lot of the time.
1: Adding adding um, the name with a comma and then your your polite sign off every time <laughs> in a you know thirty message email exactly. chain. It's ridiculous. I mean, I've, I've kind of moved away from that, thankfully. But um, I, I hear you, and oftentimes, in, in addition, when we communicate via email, we lose the um, the emotional connection to the person we're speaking to. Mm-hmm. So I, I believe there's like statistics around, um, email communication. There's more, there's more arguments. I, I don't know if that's something that was yeah. in the research.
0: Well, one of the big issues is that it's, um, it's very difficult to detect and signal sarcasm. So you think you're being sarcastic and funny, and someone else thinks you're being rude and serious. <laughs> so it's it's just a lot of the cues that signal sarcasm when you're yeah. sitting face to face. Those nonverbal cues, the intonation, all of that—that's lost in email. So you think you're mm-hmm. being just as clear, but you're you're not communicating properly.
1: Sarcasm's mm-hmm. been over my head since, <laughs> since I was a kid, anyways. <laughs> well, there you go. So <laughs> it's not crazy. a problem for you. <laughs> it's crazy. And and you know another another thing about email. It's um, Ashton Kutcher described it as everyone else's to do list for you. Yeah. So we wake up with a set of goals or some of us wake up with a set of goals and we'll talk about goal setting,
0: um, as well. I I mean, I think with email, uh, you know, the interesting thing about it is there's this debate over whether you're supposed to respond to every email you get. Now, if you get 10 emails a day, that's manageable. If Mm. you are someone who gets 5,000 emails a day, it's not manageable, but somewhere in the middle there, you have to decide what, what the right way to deal with email is Mm. And you're right. People are inviting themselves into your inbox, especially if your email address is in some form public. I'm an academic, so mine has to be on my website. So it's on my academic website. It's available. So I get a lot of unsolicited emails. Mm. That's different from communicating with people on a phone or face-to-face where you really sort of, there's consent there. You invite people in to communicate with you in some sense. Whereas email, it's totally unsolicited. So Mm. for me, it's certainly rude not to respond to someone on some level but when you are spending your entire day responding to emails and that is essentially someone else setting your to-do list you you have to draw the line somewhere
1: yeah absolutely i'm working in venture capital now and i've been i've been an entrepreneur on the other side who's sending out you know his 30 or 40 emails to investors right. you know a day at times to try to get their attention and then sitting there you know for a week two weeks not getting a response following up three times you know yeah. effectively and being like, why is this person not responding to me? How it's rude! Rough. Yeah. And now I'm on the other side, and I realize that I have portfolio companies that I need to to work with. I have investments that I'm interested in diligencing that I need to, you know, focus on. We have content to write. We have internal ops admin. Right. So really, non responsiveness is likely just a sign of a lack of time. And you know, I came up through investment banking for a couple of years and. We're trained as investment bankers to be responsive. If you do not respond to an email immediately, it's frowned upon if you do not respond to an email within twenty four hours as a junior person um, on an investment banking team, it's like potentially um, you could potentially lose your job if wow. that becomes a
0: pattern. yeah, that's interesting and terrifying yeah. what what a what a tough way to begin working, you know your work life to begin. In a situation where you're that beholden from the very beginning, where you feel that every communication, and I imagine there are tens, dozens, hundreds of them, you mm. have to respond really fast. I, I, it's, it's overwhelming, and that's the world we've, we've bought into.
1: Yeah, and, and how, do we, you know, how do we reconstruct social norms around technology such that responsiveness is not
0: um, expected? Yeah, well, it started happening. It's interesting. So when I first started writing about this topic, uh, was 2013, 2014. So it's a few years ago now. Um, and I'd, I'd float the idea with some people, publishers, and a few of them just pushed back and said, I don't think anyone cares about this. I don't think social media overuse is a thing. I don't think that's really a concern. Mm. And it's hard to believe that only five or six years ago people were saying that. So you know, things have changed pretty rapidly. Um, people are much more receptive to the message, which is this is a concern and we all need to face it and deal with it and grapple with it. Mm. So I think, you know, the, the, the rate at which norms shift tends to be fairly slow, although you sometimes have these cataclysmic events. Maybe it's, um, you know, it's like Sean Parker coming out, one of the original Facebook investors coming out and saying, turns out we knew the whole time what we were doing and we, we kind of felt bad about it, but really we don't care about you as the consumer. You know, these moments where people are unguarded and say big things like that and the public hears it and they say, oh, this is a big deal yeah um, Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica is a big one. Now that's more focused on privacy than anything and, and the lack of consent, but it's all about how we interact with technology and how mm. much power we give tech. And so I think the Cambridge Analytica scandal was a huge one. This whole privacy concerns, echo chambers, mm. um, you know, yeah fake news. Russian hacking scandals, fake news, all of this stuff makes us skeptical, and it shifts norms where consumers start to become much more demanding, and I think that's a good thing.
1: I agree entirely. And and, and it does tie together, you know, privacy, owning your own data. It's all a part of this massive attention economy, this machine that's advertising driven so that the only way for these companies to monetize is to keep us coming back. And thus they structure behavioral addictions into their um, their platforms and they call it gamification. Yeah. And so, you know, going back to behavioral addiction, you mentioned some hallmarks. What, what are some hallmark signs that, you know, I might be experiencing behavioral addiction? Yeah.
0: I mean, I think the best thing to do is just to say, um, you know, what does it mean to be addicted to something? And am mm-hmm. I showing some or all of those signs? You know, there are certain things we talk about, like withdrawal symptoms. You know, if you, mm-hmm. if you have a phone and you imagine the phone falling out of your pocket and shattering into a million pieces on the ground. How does that make you feel? Apart from the fact that it's annoying that you have to repair it, the idea of being disconnected from everything that's contained in that phone for a lot of people provokes a lot of anxiety. That's a form of, I guess, withdrawal. Mm. Um, There's a question I ask teens, and I've done this with people of various ages, all the way from kind of tween age right the way up to to late adulthood. And uh, the question is basically you have a choice for Phone falls out of your pocket, shatters into a million pieces. That's one option. That's obviously not very pleasant. Or you can have a small bone in your hand broken. What would you prefer? Now, young people struggle with that question a lot. Some of them say, well, you know, how much is it going to cost to repair the phone? How long will I not have the phone? Can I still use my other hand to use the phone? You know, like older people think that that's an insult. The question itself is an insult because obviously you don't want a bone in your hand broken. But I think that reflects um, just how much is contained in the phone, especially for younger people. It's a social universe. Mm. Um, it's, you know, drive to productivity. It's um, being connected to people, loved ones, family. And, and having that severed is a really big deal. It's like having a bone in your hand broken. So it's a difficult question. And I think the fact that people feel that way, the idea of not having that thing induces what in effect is withdrawal, suggests that that's a problem. Now, if you don't feel that, if you say, you know what, if my phone breaks, that feels liberating then you're probably okay. If you get into an elevator between two floors, just two floors, you're going to be in the elevator for five seconds and your instinct is to pull out your phone, mm. that again is another hallmark that suggests you're dependent on your phone in these very brief moments of boredom. You know, that's I think that's concerning. Um, and then if you find that your usage is increasing over time, you're tolerating the phone in effect. You need bigger doses of it to calm your anxieties or whatever else is going mm. on. That's another hallmark. So it's a it's a whole string of things. Um and now of course a lot of the phones have built into them this feedback mechanism where they'll tell you how many hours a day you're spending and what you're doing. But it's fully so I, I I
1: you know I interviewed Andrew Murray Dunn of Ciempo. Um we were talking about his company earlier. You know, I don't mm-hmm. think it's enough. It's not nearly enough because it's it's reactive just like everything else. It's not proactive. So From my perspective, the right thing to do would be to, while it's happening, address the issue, raise awareness, create a a counter mechanism to the addictive, um, the the addiction inducing bells and whistles.
0: Yeah, look, I think, you know, if it's a 10 step process to getting to the point where you're using your phone in a healthy way, the first step is knowing that there's an issue, you know, you have to know there's a problem. Mm -hmm. And so I think these seeing that you've used your phone on average for five or six hours a day over the mm. course of a month, I think is, for a lot of people, a wake-up call. Some people don't care. But that's the first step, and I agree with you. That is certainly not a solution, but it's it's a step. It's also you've got to keep in mind you know, the fact that companies like Apple are willing to give you that information – that compromises, not hugely, but it compromises their business in some sense. Yeah. Now, Apple doesn't require that you're on the phone all day as long as you buy the next phone and the next phone and the next phone. So it's mm-hmm. a bit different from, say, Facebook, where every marginal minute matters. Um, but still, like the idea that Apple's effectively saying you should spend less time using our product is anathema to the way business works. So, Yeah, and I tricky. think Apple, Apple's been doing... Um I think they've been leading
1: as far as, uh, Fang, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google uh, is concerned on the addiction front. Um, one that's not so often spoken about, you know, we always talk about Facebook and Google, you know, I'm, I'm really, um, concerned about Netflix. Mm -hmm. Um, these little things that they've introduced, these little, um, mechanisms, let's call them yeah. Uh, you know, most people go into Netflix expecting to watch one, maybe two episodes and they leave having watched five to 10. Right. Yeah. And that's anecdotal, right? I don't have statistics. Maybe one day we will have more statistics, but it it feels, it also feels less harm, harmful to the user because it's passive. Um, so it's more like traditional television, right? which I know people were concerned about television addiction back when as, as well. So. Right,
0: of course, yeah.
1: Um, so that's an issue. But going back to this hand-breaking thing, because it's not an insult to me. Um, I think I'm probably somewhere in between the age ranges. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's sad. It, like, actually hurts me.
0: Yeah, it's sad. I think so, too. Yeah. I think if you, you go back 30 years and you say to adults 30 years ago, in 30 years, I will ask this question – and teenagers will say, that's a hard question. I think that's a sad state of affairs. That's a sad, a sad kind of development in the way huh. the world works. I, I understand it. I don't judge it. But it's just—it's unfortunate that we're in
1: that position now. And it's happening, in fact. Um, we are trading off the health of our hands for the use of our phone. Yeah. I had a friend who works in social media two days ago post um, on her story. Mm-hmm. that um, she just received an injection in her thumb
0: uh, because it was, I don't know exactly what the issue was. strain, injuries and things like that. Yes. yeah Carpal tunnel, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's I mean, it's a major concern. It's one of the, you know, people say, what are the different kinds of harms that come? And there are four main types of harms. There are the psychological harms, like, mm. you know, the the harms that come from maybe anxiety or loneliness or boredom or bullying, things like that. FOMO. FOMO is a big one. Um, the physiological harms, that's things like repetitive stress, um, driving and or the leaning, neck, over the phone, form, leaning over yeah. the phone. So the social harms, not being able to really communicate with people, and then the financial ones that come from massive overspending, not being able to work properly because you just feel completely distracted all the time.
1: And then the extremes in, in the gaming world. You talk yeah. about World of Warcraft. You right. tell an incredible story of... Um, a gentleman who received behavioral addiction treatment and then ended up, I think, how many days did I? I don't know if it's it was a ridiculous number of days straight without showering. Yeah, it was without, five weeks, yeah. five weeks without so just over 35 days. Yeah, without leaving his apartment.
0: Yeah, he, uh, he basically sat and played the game 23 and a half hours a day. He didn't really sleep much. He started wearing a diaper. Um, he had piles of pizza boxes right up to the ceiling, and then he'd start a new pile. He paid a guy to bring up his pizza boxes. That's basically all he was eating. He put on tens of pounds of, of, uh, of fat, and he had been a very healthy guy. He'd been very active. And at the end of it, he lost a lot of hair. He became grossly overweight and was very uncomfortable, and you know, it clearly wasn't good for him on any level.
1: And that's an extreme example, it is. right? And I think people will, you know, will ask, "Well, what about kind of the average use?" But I think that highlights another another concept in your book um, that really resonated with me, which is want versus like. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain that a little bit?
0: Yeah, so um, want versus like is is basically this idea that when when we start. Approaching something, say it's a relationship with someone. Um, you know, you you want to spend time with them and you like them. That's also true of the relationship you initially have with things like Facebook or Instagram. The first time you sign up, you're like, I want to be on Facebook. I want to be on Instagram. And I also like it. I'm enjoying it. I'm getting something from it. This is interesting to see what other people are doing. What tends to happen over time, though, is those two things often separate, especially in unhelpful relationships. You know, if you're dating someone who's not good for you. You still may want to be with them, but you probably stop liking them in some sense. It's kind of a, like a fatal attraction situation. The same is true of, um, of drug, drug taking. So what happens with drug taking is you start out wanting and liking the drug, but as you build up a tolerance for the drug, it's harder and harder to get the high you're looking for. And so what ends up happening is you really want the drug badly, but you don't like it anymore. So you hate the fact that you're addicted to it, but you still need it. You want it badly. So the separation of wanting and liking is a very powerful idea because as far as the brain is concerned, wanting is very robust. It's very hard to break down wanting, but it's very easy to break down liking. So liking erodes very quickly and what's left is this horrible kind of shell of a state where you you want something very badly, whether it's to check your phone again whether it's to make sure you have no more emails in your inbox, whether it's to watch one more episode of Netflix, (laughs) whatever it is, all of these things, you want them so badly, even as you hate the experience. And I think a lot of us have this kind of perverse relationship now with technology where we want a lot of the things on our screens badly, but they actually are not things we like at all.
1: And I I mean, you know, going down this path, first, as you mentioned, awareness is crucial. And I think you highlighted something interesting earlier, which is when you first started researching this book, people were like, is this an issue? Yeah. And here we are six years later and it's very clear that it is, which is great. It's people like you that drive the conversation to the front, uh, the front lines, which Mm -hmm. is critical. Um, Now reading your book um, and others like it, I have an awareness of my own, you know, behavioral addictions to my phone. Um, And yet I still participate. There are times when I have left a dinner table to go to the bathroom, air quotes. And, you know, I'm in the bathroom for maybe 10 to 15 minutes because I'm either checking my email because I knew it was in my pocket and someone was trying to get a hold of me for work. Or even just I'm scrolling through social media. Yeah, right. And I, I, you know, I I want to think that I'm not
0: alone in that. You are. You definitely are not alone. Yeah. I, I think if you if you it's, could, cre- it's mental. It's, it is, <laughs> it's yeah. But I mean, if you could interview people and get them to be completely open and honest mm. with you about it, I think just a huge majority of people around, I don't know, aged, teenaged up to thirties, I would say, um, maybe even forties. Will say yes. That describes a situation that I've experienced at least once, probably many times. Mm. And even if you don't leave the table to go and check, I think once you get to the bathroom, once you're there, you're like, oh, "I'll just check quickly." And then you check, and then you're down, as you say, the rabbit hole. You're gone, and yeah. and then ten minutes, fifteen minutes passes. And it's and it's
1: as you said, right? It's it's this unconscious action of first taking the phone out of our pockets. Yeah. Um, and then and then all of a sudden, you know, 30, 40 minutes later, we've scrolled through every single app possible, right. all of the colorful bells and whistles, no more notifications. Um, I I even have been in a place where I I will open my email app. So I remove notifications. And one interesting aspect of removing notifications is I don't know what's in there. So
0: it almost creates this reverse effect. Yeah. This is a concern too, right? The perverse effect of removing notifications. Everyone says, remove notifications so you don't keep having that buzz in your pocket that says you need to check your phone. That makes sense. But as you say, then there's that kind of, it's like a box of chocolates. Who knows what you're (laughs) going to get? It's almost more exciting to open your phone not knowing if they're going to be notifications. I sometimes do this when I'm writing. I'll, I'll shut down, you know, Chrome and I won't have any access to email or anything. You're doing your deep work. I'm doing my deep work. But then as I'm doing my deep work, I get an hour into it. I'm like, anything could be there. This is really exciting now. And then (laughs) my mind is preoccupied by the fact that I haven't had it open. And therefore, instead of getting drip fed little bits, it accumulates over time. And in my mind, the the potential reward of opening up the screen again and opening up the email programs are huge. And so it, it kind of backfires. A lot of of these things, these interventions backfire. One one that I think is really interesting is Instagram's new, um, you know, you've seen everything, all the posts, all new posts in the last two days. So Instagram's basically saying you can stop checking Instagram now because you've seen everything. But what happens is if you follow enough people on Instagram, that becomes a goalpost. Like you want to reach that point. So you just keep scrolling and scrolling. You say, Uh, well, I guess I haven't seen everything yet. So in the end, people spend more time on Instagram. It doesn't actually help you use the program less. It just drives you to use it more.
1: Now, this is a question that I think I've addressed with pretty much every guest. That leads us to, does Instagram know that?
0: Oh, yeah. I, I think <laughs> so. absolutely they have
1: to. So are we beyond the point of like, <laughs> this is just, you know, accidental and, you know, a, a um, an effect of the incentivization structure for Instagram? Is it now intentional for these platforms to be driving, or has it always been?
0: There are no accidents in multi-billion dollar companies. Mm. Like, they just don't they don't happen. You don't have, like, an accident that affects billions of humans and that is worth tens of billions of dollars. It just it doesn't happen. Mm. Um, that's my experience, at least. And I, I know because, you know, maybe five, six, seven, ten years ago, people like me were being consulted on this stuff. We were being asked questions like, I'm designing a tech program. How do I make people use it for five minutes a day more than they want to? Like, what do I do? What what hooks do I embed in it? What do I bake into it mm. so that they spend just a little bit more time? And I have a lot of the answers and mm. a lot of people have a lot of the answers. And even if you don't have those answers, all you need to do is A, B, test a whole lot of different features, move the button over here, see what happens. Oh, look, moving the button there means people can't find the button. So then they spend an extra 10 minutes a day. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just these big companies... They don't make mistakes, they don't there are no accidents. I think I think Instagram is very smart to say we care about you, we want you to get off Instagram when you checked all your posts. But obviously they know most people to get to that point based on the average number of people we follow and the average number of posts, it's gonna take a lot of scrolling to get there. Mm-hmm. And people will scroll.
1: And and treat it as a goalpost. I
0: think so. I can't, you know, I don't know for a fact. It's hard mm-hmm. to get people from behind the curtain to say, yep, turns out that's the case. Sean Parker did that, and a few other people have yeah, come Tristan out. Tristan Harris he, has, has come out and said. He has, and he was behind the curtain of Google, and so that that certainly helps. But um, apart from those isolated cases, we just have to get a sense of what we think is going on. And what I think is going on is that these companies are very savvy. So what are these hooks? Or another word that you use to describe is the juice. The juice, yeah. So in the book, I talk about several of them. The biggest one is something that is very old in the world of psychology, which is just the kind of rewards you give people. Mm. So, you know, the the kind of reward you get when you go to work every day and you get a paycheck every two weeks, if you are in that kind of job, the paycheck doesn't change in size. It comes at a reliable interval. That's appealing to people, but not that appealing. We just keep doing it because it's necessary. The other kind of reward that describes casinos slot machines is variable reward Mm. um, where you don't know the size of the reward and you don't know how often it's going to come or when it's next going to arrive. And that describes a lot of what we do on our screens. You don't know when you're going to get your next email, your next post that's going to go viral on Instagram or Twitter or whatever. You know, a lot of these, a lot of these um, screen experiences have this question mark built into them. Mm. And so a big part of what makes them addictive is this: this sort of hunting for rewards. We we know this from a lot of experiments on even even rats. You can put a rat in front of a little lever, and if the rat doesn't know whether the lever is going to produce little pellets of food, even once the rat's no longer hungry for pellets, it'll sit there like it's at a slot machine and just keep pulling the lever. Wow! And we're we're those rats too. Um, so there's there's the variable rewards. Um, a big one is the structure of goals. So having a certain round number of friends or keeping up a streak on Snapchat or oh, all this Snapchat sort of stuff. Snapchat streaks. Yeah, Snapchat streaks are insidious because as they get longer, you have more to lose. And so you become, you care a lot more about ensuring that the streak doesn't die. These
1: poor kids. Yeah, it's I rough. I deleted Snapchat. You know, I, Facebook really, wow, they, they went after mm-hmm. Snapchat. And yeah. I think successfully.
0: Yeah, um... It seems like it, um, or at least, um, you know, Snapchat's peak may have passed um, or has passed. But But those streaks. Streaks, it's it's very clever. You create a streak on pretty much anything. Think about people who run. This is a good example. There are people who, who engage in running streaks where every day for a certain number of days, they will run a certain distance, whether it's a mile or three miles or whatever. When you've done that for 10 days, that streak is valuable. And so you, the 11th day, you might have a stress injury, but you just keep going. Mm -hmm. There are stories of women who are in hospital, nine months pregnant, about to have a baby and they have to run on that day because the streak is a year (sighs) long. Wow. Yeah. So there are, there are some crazy stories of people doing things that undermine their broader well being for the sake of something narrow, like a streak.
1: And so, and, and goal setting, um, I want to talk about that, but I also, what you just mentioned about running, um, Identify something important here because I think a lot of people listening will say, well, there's also a lot of positives that come out of my behavior. You know, I on Facebook, as an example, you know, I find events and I'm able to see where my friends are going so sure. I can go to those events. Um, on Instagram, I learn about new restaurants and thus I have increased my, you know, new experiences with friends and I book those restaurants or new places to travel to. Or, right. Um, and with running, right? When we use this example, it makes people think. Well, running's good for you. Yeah, right. Running sure. good. Yeah, <laughs> um, no. Not I, running
0: bad. Yeah, exactly. Totally. No, I totally agree with you. So it's interesting. The first couple of examples you mentioned, finding events and restaurants. The original version of technology that I think was so appealing was that technology was a utility. It mm. was Google Maps. <laughs> I think Google Maps is the best thing on my phone. Mm. It's a miracle that I have that wherever I go in the world um Weather apps are fantastic. Until your phone shuts off and you can't find your way out of a paper bag. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So I'm very over reliant <laughs> on Google Maps as well. <laughs> yeah, we all are. um But you know, the utility side of technology, I think, is a miracle. That's amazing. Being able to find things, accessing information, all of that is great. It's the stuff that surrounds that that is more is addictive. The addictive stuff. A lot of it's social and it's a perversion of, of the way social situations should be and social relationships should be. Um, the example you give with running, I think, also is an important example because with so many things, um, we know this from psychology, from the literature in psychology on all sorts of different things, there is kind of a sweet spot in the middle for a lot of different experiences. So for exercise, you shouldn't sit on a couch every single day all day. And you probably shouldn't run to the point where you induce stress fractures and you are, you know, giving birth that day and you're running in the hospital (laughs) hallways because you need to keep a street going. So there's something in the middle that's the sweet spot that's healthy. I think for for the United States and for a lot of developed countries, the bigger problem is not that we're over-exercising, it's that we're under-exercising. So if having a Fitbit and the thing saying you need to walk 10,000 steps today makes people more active, on balance, that's probably good. And, and I think it's very important to just take a step back and say, anyone who demonizes technology and says everything about tech is bad is, I think, doing massive disservice to the broader message, which is just that we should be more careful and thoughtful about how we consume tech. Hmm. There are certainly good things that come from it, but there's a lot of bad, and I don't think we fully understand the bad.
1: Now, to that point, when you say we should be more careful about how we consume and interact with tech… Mm-hmm. I agree. And yet, even with that awareness, we are still being manipulated yeah. um, by these companies, whether intentional or unintentional. And so, how, who, where does the responsibility fall?
0: Look, in the ideal world, um, every company that ever made a product would care first and foremost about the people who consume it. So, in medicine, for example, the Hippocratic Oath says, above all else, you do no harm. Right. Mm. So the first thing you do is you say, "What's the worst that could happen here?" I want to make sure that doesn't happen. That's not how business works. It's not how capitalism works. And um, that's in a lot of a lot of cases, that's okay. Things kind of function and they go on. So in the ideal world, this would be something that either governments through legislation put on tech companies, mm. or we through pressure put on tech companies. The truth is, I think we realize now. It's fifteen years since the advent of Facebook. Amazon is growing and huge and you know Netflix is getting more effective at ensuring that you watch ten episodes in a row. We realize as individual consumers that we can't rely on these companies to do the right thing. And so I think we're starting to say, well, what can I do? Mm-hmm. And that's and that's how the movement has shifted a little bit. You know, I I've been railing against the companies that are doing this to us for a long time, and I think we should continue railing. But in the meantime, I want to make sure that my kids who are one and three Mm. grow up in a world where they have the ability to say okay you know I've spent an hour on my screen today I should probably run outside or or do something different S- sit face to face with someone and so that's going to take a double a double pronged approach so what we describe this as the sort of bottom up grassroots approach where you have a lot of a lot of um individual consumers coming together and saying we need change and yes. then there's the top down approach where governments say that's not okay that's not okay here's legislation that's going to deal with this thing that is happening much more in western europe and actually parts of east asia than it is here but it may start to happen in the u.s too um what are well so
1: i want to i want to talk about both of those approaches so Mm -hmm. let's start with with grassroots sure um friend of mine tommy sobel started a company called brick building healthy habits in relation to your tech it's uh, one hour per day, you put your phone down and you hang out with people in the real world. Sounds amazing. What other behaviors or habits can we cultivate to help us with behavioral addiction?
0: Yeah, so you know, one of the key things I think is that um, relying on on um, willpower is really dangerous. Willpower is limited; it's imperfect. Mm. You don't want to have to rely on willpower. You want to create structures and systems and environments around you that mean you don't even have to turn to willpower. What that means, for example, is cultivating a habit where either using a a tool like brick or otherwise making sure that you don't have physical access to your phone for a certain amount of time. So one thing that might mean is saying, you know, from 5 p.m. till 7 p.m., my phone is going to be in this particular drawer in my bedroom it's going to be in my bedside table i'm going to lock it in there and it's going to stay there and no matter what i'm doing i'm not going to have my phone or it could be something as simple as saying you know one thing i do every day is i have dinner and dinner is going to be absolutely screen free i'm never no matter who i'm with where i am i'm never going to use my phone during dinner Mm. and those habits first of all over time as you cultivate them it's easier and easier to follow them but also um By relying on this concept known as behavioral architecture, by removing the phone from your presence, you can't reach it. One of the problems for 75% of Americans is 24 hours a day, they don't have to move their feet to reach their phones. Mm. Now, if you put something that physically close to you, it'll have an outsized effect on your psychological experience of the world. The minute your phone spends eight hours a day in a different room, it's not going to have an effect on you. That's sort of almost definitional. Mm. So if you can cultivate that habit where, say from nine to five on the weekends, I'm going to put my phone on airplane mode. So I'm going to turn it effectively into a dumb phone and I can take photos with it. You're going to have a much more enriching and interesting weekend, I imagine. Things like that. Absolutely. I
1: think um, for me, uh, removing my phone from my person really works. Mm -hmm. I don't think about my phone if it's not on me. Yeah. Um, I don't know that that works for everyone. Some people, you know, they go through withdrawal. They do and you have to push through it yeah yeah but but that idea of pushing through it you know i think that undermines the concept that this is an addiction that's being you know like it, it it's the, the same way that we we deal with substance abuse right? yeah it's uh, is the response is not to push through it for those people that are truly addicted
0: well if you have an addiction to a substance and you are Weaning yourself off off the substance, you have no choice but to go through a period that's difficult. You can treat it with other drugs, but the process of coming down off the drugs so that you, you know, rid your system of it is very unpleasant. There is a process that is hard and unpleasant. And that's going to be true for things like phone use. You know, if you've been using your phone every single day, 24 hours a day, it's available to you and suddenly it's not available, you're going to notice that. That is a sign that you are doing the right thing and trying to distance yourself from it. And so that process... Um, is sort of a necessary part of what it is to form these better habits and to introduce this kind of behavioral architecture. Mm. If you didn't experience that, that'd be a sign that you probably don't have a problem. If you find that having your phone in a different room for four hours a day, you never think about it and you're happy, you probably don't have that much of a problem to begin with. But I think most of us do. And we, we would notice that
1: absolutely i i certainly do even though you know with that particular behavior it doesn't affect me i know when when it's on me it's hard to resist yeah um so that's kind of that's kind of grassroots that's what we as individuals can do cultivating healthy habits through behavioral architecture um talk to me about what they're doing in western europe and if it's Effective, or I don't even know if there's been a long enough timeline to,
0: yeah. to tell. Yeah, you know, this is an interesting question. There are different ways of introducing legislation, and it's a little bit like drug legislation. You can do two things you can punish the, the dealers, the growers of drugs, the producers of drugs, the chemists mm. who produce the drugs, the distributors of the drugs, or you can punish the users, which is the wrong way to go. You really mm. want to, you know, cut the thing off at its head. And, um, What's happening in a lot of countries is the users are being punished, which I think is wrong. So in, in parts of, Eastern, of uh, East Asia, kids who spend time in video game parlours past midnight, if they're under the age of 16, their parents get fined. Mm. Now, that, what you're doing there is you're not saying to the tech companies that are producing these games, you should do something different. You're saying to the people who are falling prey to them that they are doing something wrong and they need to change how they behave. That, to me, is a mistake. The kind of legislation that works, though, is the kind that says this feature, this predatory feature that's built into certain tech platforms, we're not going to allow that anymore. You can't have unadvertised in-game purchases or in-app purchases anymore, that sort of thing. Um, In in France, there's a a great piece of legislation that suggests that if you have a company, if you run a company with more than 50 employees, you have to have a sort of charter that they sign and that you sign where you say, this is how I'm going to protect you from the evils of, of email. And it's things like um, between the hours of 10 p.m. and 6 a.m., we're going to batch emails. So you won't get any emails from the, for those eight hours of the day. And when you wake up at 6 a.m., all the emails will arrive. Now, that's not ideal, but at least it means that in the night you don't roll over and say, I wonder if I've got any new emails. It doesn't require that you check in and respond to emails in the middle of the night. It's a step in the right direction. Um, mm-hmm. And so that, that kind of approach, that sort of top-down approach, I think is, is better. It's also terrifying to think waking up with a full inbox. It is, it is. And there are hybrid just... versions too, yeah. <laughs> I totally agree with you. I mean, the idea of waking up and having like 100 unread emails yeah. is terrifying. But what a lot of the companies do is they, you know, it becomes very paternalistic where they say things like, we batch emails and then we slowly drip feed, drip release them to you. Mm. So we'll batch them for those eight hours. And then every 10 minutes thereafter, we'll release a certain proportion of those emails to you so you don't bombard it. Yeah, but you know none of these are, is perfect. We're trying to deal with an imperfect system, and I think at least there are attempts to think and be more thoughtful. About. And and there are feedback
1: loops, as you referenced, right? With it, with Instagram's two, um, you know, two days of content limit. Yeah, right. It it, it creates these new new behaviors that it does. are unexpected, often unexpected.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is once you introduce these interventions, you have to monitor the way people are behaving just to make sure that they aren't having a net negative effect. So, you know,
1: going back to grassroots and, and healthy habit building, uh, I wanted to ask you this because taking our phones out of our pocket and putting them in a drawer is only going to be an effective strategy until our phones and our tech is
0: essentially built into us. Yes. Which is on the way. Which is terrible. And I'm pushing against it with everything I have. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I think how, that's how so. Well, because most of the good interventions we have available to us right now involve the fact that we are not physically attached to our phones, even mm-hmm. though it feels like we are. You no, the the fact that we have pockets on our clothes on many of the articles of clothing we have is itself the problem. But once you have a phone that's effectively embedded in your brain or under your skin, there's no way to get away from it. I think so that's very dystopian.
1: Jo- yeah, Josh Wolf from Lux Capital talked about this on his uh, interview with Sh- Shane Parrish. He mentions how the half life of um, the human tech interface is accelerating. So, first we had these supercomputers and you would walk up to them and unplug and plug in, bleep, 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 you know, right. and, and then we had desktops <laughs> and then we had laptops. So now the computer is actually on our person. Yeah. And then I think it's like from laptop to cell phone was like six years. This was like 25, 12 and a half, 6.25, right. three point, whatever. And then it went, you know, for a man, the only thing separating us from our phone is is a sliver of fabric in our pockets. Right. And now we have the Apple watch, which mm-hmm. is on our wrist. And now we have the AirPods, which are in our ears. And so we are marching at an accelerated pace towards that human Kind of like human tech interface, where it's truly embedded within us, whether it be AR in contact lenses or a chip in our arm, or um, you know, a neural link. Yeah. So we're going, we're going there, right? I mean, we
0: seem to be heading in that
1: direction. Yeah. Is the only solution to that to have regulation against?
0: I, I mean, the the good thing about. Humans is that there's a certain point at which we say that's that's weird. I'm not okay with that. Mm. We, we haven't quite got there yet. I think if I said to you, um, you have a choice now. You can buy this new. It's called the Apple Brain, and we're going to insert a chip into your brain, and you'll never have to buy another phone. And just by thinking, you'll be able to make a phone call and see your email in your mind or something. Mm. There will be some people who say that sounds great, but they're going to be a tiny minority at least initially. So to some extent, we're relying on this human, this innate human um, bristling at at tech that seems a little bit too invasive. We're getting close, though. I mean, even even glasses, VR glasses, AR glasses, Google Glass, Snapchat spectacles. How great would that? that, You
1: know, like I can size someone up immediately, right? I can look at you and see your social score. Sure. You know, your job, your LinkedIn profile comes up, right. The little QR code tells me just how rich you are. Yeah. It's perfect. Then yeah. I don't have to interact with people that aren't, you know, aren't cool. It's a huge concern. <laughs> I mean, right. Obviously, exactly. I'm kidding. Yeah. See, I don't know if the sarcasm. <laughs> 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 yeah.
0: No, you're right. I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a, it's a pretty big concern, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, look, the, the reason I wrote this book is not because I'm concerned about phones per se. It's because I'm concerned about what comes next and the next and the next. And I, we always sort of feel that where we are is, is a destination. We've kind of arrived. Like, isn't it amazing that we're at this place where we have Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram and Twitter? Mm. And, but in five years, there'll be a program that doesn't even exist today that all of us are using. And, um, you know, things are obviously going to get more advanced over time. I think we're at the bottom of a very steep, very long, very tall mountain feels like we're at the top, but really this is just sort of a fake peak on the way. Mm. And so if we can't grapple with a small rectangular device that fits in our pockets, how are we going to grapple with glasses and with things that are embedded in our bodies and brains? I think we need to kind of learn how to grapple with tech now so that when we have more formidable forms of it over the next few decades, Mm. we have some pretty well-honed, well-tested approaches to dealing with them. For me, you know, I think
1: that that's a design issue. And so I look at someone like Brian Johnson, who's creating Kernel, which is a human um, machine brain interface. Right. And, you know, in the design, it needs to be about human evolution. Um, And I think you mentioned this in your book as well, that the biology of humans um, just hasn't kept up with the tech. And certainly... I think we can see that the regulat- regulators can't keep up with the tech. Right. I mean, watching the Zuckerberg, um, I don't even know what it's called, when Zuckerberg went in front of Congress, it's like yeah. it was it was embarrassing. Right. These guys have never, half of them probably haven't even used a laptop before.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, I, I think it's every imaginable institution evolves and, and we ourselves evolve more slowly than tech is evolving. And that's the big concern that it's kind of running away from us and we're just signing on blindly and our institutions are signing on blindly. And the people who are supposed to be safeguarding all of this are dinosaurs, mostly old white men who don't understand how the technology works. And they're supposed to be guarding us. They're supposed to be conducting interviews that are supposed to be getting at the truth of the matter and then also intervening and saying that's not okay and this is okay. Most of them don't know even the right terms for half of what's going on. So I agree with you. I think it's, it's a pretty big concern. And we're trying, we're scrambling as much as possible to catch up as, as far as we can. So I haven't read
1: Homo Du... 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 Du-X? Deus. Homo Deus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't read it, uh, but I think it talks about a future of kind of like an integrated yeah. machine. Right. Have you read it? I haven't. Okay. I was just curious what, what your thinking was on that, um, that future. I'm sure you've thought about it. Yeah,
0: I've thought about it. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's, it seems like it's, as you say, it's inevitable. It's around the corner. Uh, I hope we are thoughtful about it. I hope that as we sign on to it, whatever it happens to be, we, we have some defense mechanisms in place, whatever that means. Um, what what I'm, does defense
1: mechanism mean to you in this instance I mean what are some defense mechanisms what are some values maybe that we can install
0: yeah they're incredibly the, the physical ones are very primitive there are things like keeping the phone in another room but when the phone as you say is a part of you you need more than that as a defense mechanism um, I, the, the single biggest one for me is just skepticism cynic, cynicism, um, resistance general kind of concern and, and as you approach new forms of technology, you should go into them saying, What is what is the if I were designing this, what would I want from people? Like what could I get out of people with this thing? You know, like whether it's invading privacy to get more information for selling things, whether it's a marketing tool, whether it's a tool for gathering data, um, whether it's a way to capture attention, whatever it may be, I think smart consumers will always say, like what's the worst thing that can happen when I use this? And, and what am I giving other people by using it? You know, if it's something that's essentially free and you're not paying for it, you're paying in some other way, whether it's to give up your privacy or data or whatever it may be. Um, so yeah. I, I think that cynicism, yeah, that cynicism, that skepticism, that, that caution is really, really important. That's a big part of this whole movement, I think, is just making consumers who are essentially not really wise to this a little bit wiser. So they say, oh, I recognize, I see that program. I see why, I can see why Amazon would want you to use a device that responds to voice. Like that totally makes sense. They want to gather information. They want to be able to hear what's going on as you say things to sell better to you. It's useful to know that. Most of us don't think about that stuff. Most humans don't think about it, but it's, it's it's important for us to be mindful. What?
1: You know, you talk about attention in the book. Um, I think the average human attention span has declined below that of a goldfish.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's it's this factoid. You know, I people love that. They like it a lot. It's you know, there is no canonical measure of attention. It's mm-hmm. hard to get a sense of what exactly attention is and how you can measure it. But the, it certainly seems clear that we don't like thinking. And we don't like being bored and we don't like sitting without a device. Now, you, you used to be able to leave people in a room and say, just sit here for 10 minutes waiting. And they would sit there fairly comfortably. Now, if you do that and you take away their phones, they freak out. It's very uncomfortable. Squirming. Squirming. Um, they, they don't know how to think and just sit and just ponder.
1: Mm. It's hard to be alone with your thoughts.
0: It is. It didn't used
1: to be, but it is now. So so if our attention might be declining, you know, I'm going to flip this to the positive side. Like, are we cultivating superpowers as humans as well? Like when I look at the next generation, the kids that kind of grew up with tech, mm-hmm. um, you know, I didn't get a cell phone until I was 14, 15. So I had those formative years without a screen in front of me every, d- every right. day. Maybe their attention span is dwindling. Maybe their in-person social communication skills are dwindling, but what other areas of their brains, what other areas of their persona are, uh, in fact, improving, if any? I
0: don't know if you'll like this response, but I'd say none. I, don't okay. think, the, I think the only thing that's improving is our ability to outsource. We are becoming master delegators. Mm-hmm. We're doing everything as efficiently as possible. Um, we are making the most of all the utilities available to us and eliminating the frictions that make us human. Those frictions like going to the store and having a conversation with someone as you buy a physical product from the shelf. That stuff sounds annoying to us, the way we've constructed our lives. It's a friction point. It's annoying that I have to go to the store, I have to travel there and I have to purchase something. But for, I don't know, thousands of years, humans interacted and traded and did all that stuff and formed relationships on that basis. And then you trade with the same person again, And you'd form a relationship. And And that's where magic happens too. That's where magic happens. All the friction points are where a lot of magic happens, whether you meet your significant other or whether you form a friendship or a business partnership or whatever. That stuff doesn't happen when you are eliminating every possible human friction. And And so I think it's a problem. I
1: heard recently that conversation dialogue um, in all but two instances, one where you're arguing and the other where you're given unsolicited uh, advice or criticism um, is generally a net positive for humans is, is that the same for communication via social media or via text or email?
0: You know, there's nothing inherently wrong with communicating by text or by email or any other form, or even on FaceTime or Skype or WhatsApp or whatever. All, all of these forms of communication are fine. They're, mm. they're although in some sense stripped down. So a lot of the channels of communication are stripped away. The fidelity isn't there in the same way. Um, you don't get a lot of the same sort of, um, psychological benefits, the social benefits that come from sitting in a room with someone, watching them move and interact with you. That's totally different from, from talking to someone and just kind of getting little bits of drip fed information. Like we, the way we communicate now on text in particular you learn very quickly that three exclamation points is the appropriate number for this particular thing. <laughs> you know, like, or ha, ha, ha. Like, there's a difference between LOL, ha,
1: my mom thought LOL was lots of love for Lots like of love, yeah, years. exactly.
0: So, you know, everything becomes kind of like mathematically precise. There's Ooh. a ha, ha versus ha, ha, ha versus ha, 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 ha conveys a sort of mathematically precise amount and of
1: humor. We, we, we don't have much time. I know you have a hard stop. Sure, um, sure. Wh- we didn't even talk about this with email. The new Google, the new Gmail, where it literally predictive email, yeah, <laughs> where it responds for you. Where oh yeah. my! So eventually, we're moving to a place where basically I won't even need to participate in my email inbox because yeah. machine Mark will be sending to you know to machine Adam, <laughs> yeah. and they'll yeah. be communicating. And right, isn't that crazy? It's, I, it's it is crazy. Yeah,
0: I mean, look, the, the we're a very long way from being able to do that sort of stuff perfectly. Mm. which is comforting, but we're moving in that direction. There are certainly enough people trying on our behalf. Mm. Yeah. So, so before you go, what's what's next for you? Um, so I'm I'm starting to work on my third book. So Irresistible was my second book. Um, my first book was about how small features in the world around us shape how we think, feel, and behave. Mm. Um, and Irresistible was about a very big thing that's shaped how we think, feel, and behave. And I'm very interested in change in general. So this this third book... I want to focus on change and trying to understand what induces change, what produces it, um, how we can deal with it. Humans don't like change, but it's essential. It's kind of ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's the it's, only constant. It's the only constant. That's the old the old um, saying. And I don't think we understand it. And I actually think we have major misconceptions about change that I think need to be changed themselves. And so ah, I want to write that book. I love it. And I'm excited to read it. And I hope that
1: you come across discoveries that help us change change some of the behaviors that we spoke about some of the constructs that we live in. Um, so I'll do my can, best. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I really appreciate your work and I really appreciate the time, um, that you offered us, uh, to learn a little bit about it. So thank you. Thanks man.
0: Thanks for having me. Awesome. All right, man. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed that episode and I hope that you're enjoying the podcast. It's been a really fun ride so far. I just get so excited every time I meet some of these incredible people and just love sharing their stories and, and ideas with you all. You can learn more about the show at lookuppodcast.com. That's T-H-E, lookuppodcast.com. Uh, you can follow me on social media at wark meinstein w-a-r-c-m-e-i-n-s-t-e-i-n on both twitter instagram um, and medium and facebook Uh, we have a facebook page for the show as well the lookup podcast um, on facebook so check us out you can also subscribe to our mailing list on the website for more future updates if there's anything from the show that you want to catch i've posted that in the show links For you to check out and if there's any way that i can improve please let me know feel free to reach out if you have any guest recommendations please let me know other than a couple of individuals who are helping me out in the background you know this is a passion project and i'm always open to feedback and any kind of support i want to thank sam palumbo and patch kid music for the sound editing and the intro and outro song that he created and I want to thank Hello There Collective for their support on my social media. You can check them out at HelloTheRECollective.com. All right, that's enough for me. I'm sure you're ready to go on to your next activity. Thank you for listening. And please come back again next week for another episode of The Look Up Podcast.